You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 70. With the beginning of another month, I would like to thank all of our Patreon subscribers for their generous help and support. You are all awesome, and I hope you all feel awesome. Also, you can look forward to, hopefully next week, another premium episode where we continue our story re-examining the role of British cavalry during the First World War. I would also like to thank the four people who gave the show a review on iTunes last month. I'm not going to try and say all of the names, because Apple IDs are generally unpronounceable. But the two people from the United States, one from the UK, and one from the Netherlands, you know who you are. And thank you. Last week, we looked at the arrival of Patan at Verdun on February the 25th. When he arrived, the impetus of the original German attack was finally coming to an end. But of course, the French commanders did not know that at the time. So this week, we will ask the question that the German leaders were starting to begin to look around and ask themselves, what next? After the offensive finally came to a halt on the East Bank on the 28th of February, Falkenhayn, the Crown Prince, and Nobelsdorf would meet to determine the answer to that question, an answer that would eventually become an attack on the West Bank. An attack on this bank to complement the efforts on the East Bank was initially purposefully ignored by Falkenhayn, against the advice of the crown prince and Nobelsdorf, and the German soldiers had been paying for this decision since almost the very beginning of the attack. Now the attack would have to be launched on the West Bank, and the Germans would not be facing a disorganized or unprepared French line like they might have on the 21st, but instead they faced prepared and ready French units that were 100% knowledgeable about the attack. Before we get to this attack, though, let's take a step back to figure out why the German attack had come to a halt by the end of February. When the offensive was just six days old, on February the 27th, the Germans were already encountering problems. The French 20th Corps and all the other reinforcements that were coming into the line were holding the German advance, and the Germans were now fighting for every step forward. In total, the Germans had advanced about halfway to the city, but it started to feel like no matter what they did, they could not move it much further. This was crazy, because just two days before, on the 25th, it seemed like the Germans were on the brink of victory. 
But now, on the 27th, the, for the first time of the attack, the Germans were unable to move the front line forward at all, in any appreciable way. The German high command would record that, quote, the enemy has brought the offensive on the Meuse Heights temporarily to a halt. And in Verdun, the last battle, Paul Jankowski would say of this period that, quote, equilibrium was setting in, made of local attacks and counterattacks, house-to-house fighting, and incessant shellfire that stopped German infantry in their tracks or confined them to shelters hastily excavated from the frozen ground, end quote. The Germans were not close to giving up, not even close, but it was time to start reconsidering the situation. They had inflicted huge casualties, but with the positions that the French still held, it was all for naught. Other than maybe the troops around Douaumont, all the German troops were in positions that were inferior to the ones that the French still occupied in front of them, so continuing forward was the only option. This was easier said than done, though. One of the plethora of problems was the artillery. Now, before the attack, you may remember us talking about how the Germans had given a lot of thought to the artillery and what to do with the guns as the battle moved forward. The physical difficulty of moving the guns over the broken ground of the battlefield was much greater than they anticipated. The biggest problem was not the largest of the German guns. They were often stationary and far behind the lines. Or the light field guns, which were often easily moved. The problem was instead the real workhorses of the German artillery and of the attack at Verdun, the heavy howitzers. They were hard to move over the battlefield in the best of of circumstances, which were present in the early days of the battle when the ground was frozen. But on the 28th, the temperatures began to rise, and moving the guns over the mud had become a Herculean task. Last episode... We talk about how this rise in temperatures posed such a problem for the French trying to move supplies up the sacred way, and their solution was to get thousands of men to shovel gravel and other material onto the road to try and create a driving surface. That was hard work, but it did keep the traffic flowing. The Germans could not really do this for their guns, as they were far more spread out than a single road, and could not be consolidated out of fear of French artillery. The guns did still get moved forward. When it was required, though, it was just an extremely slow process that put huge swaths of the German gun line out of actions for hours or days as they moved forward. The problems extended beyond just moving the guns, though. Moving ammunition to the front was causing just as much of a headache as the supplier lines were forced to extend over the battlefield. The entire goal was to keep the guns as close to the front as possible so that their fire could be made as devastating as possible. This increased accuracy, but it came at a cost. That cost was moving their ammunition over this battlefield, through this mud, and through this terrain. And also by having the guns closer to the front, they were more vulnerable to the growing number of French guns. The entire German artillery plan had been based on the fact that they had the superiority, but that was sort of running out. And it increased the casualties at the guns but also the attrition rate on the guns themselves and the teams of horses that were supposed to move them around the battlefield, which then just created more problems in trying to move the next set of guns forward. Thousands of these horses were killed on some days, and the supply of new horses wasn't infinite. And while all of these problems were reducing the effectiveness of the German artillery, the French artillery just kept getting stronger. More guns were brought in and more ammunition was making its way to the front. 
that the Germans might have been able to stop the flow of supplies. There were many German guns at, at Verdun that could have brought a continuous rain of fire down on the sacred way, and closed that line of trucks and of the light railway that were keeping the French resistance going. But they did not. Then there was the other problem for the Germans, the fact that Patan was putting most of the newly arriving artillery on the West Bank, the side that the Germans were not attacking on. General von Svel began to pressure the crown prince and Noblesdorf to launch an attack against these French guns, because they could be positioned to bring fire onto almost any German position on the East Bank. They were positioned along a ridge called La Mort Homme, which means the dead man. Few times that I am aware of have geographical names been more appropriate than that of La Mort Homme, when you consider what will happen over the spring and summer of 1916 on the ridge that was named the Dead Man. Because of all the problems that the Germans were having, Falkenhayn, Noblesdorf, and the Crown Prince would meet to discuss the possibility of an attack on the West Bank. Just a bit of a refresher on the West Bank before we move forward. When planning for the attack, Falkenhayn had insisted that the attack not be launched on the West Bank, because he did not think that the Germans had enough men to make it work. This went against all German military thinking at the time. Every thought exercise from before the war had said that both banks had to be attacked at Verdun if there was any hope of success. However, Falkenhayn believed that the Germans could neutralize the French artillery on the West Bank with German artillery. When the offensive got started, it quickly became apparent that this was not the case. The German guns just couldn't fully silence the French guns on the West Bank. And on just the third day of the attack, the February the 24th, the 5th Army asked for more troops so that they could launch an attack on the West Bank, but Falkenhayn refused. Now at this point, the offensive was still going well, and Falkenhayn believed that soon the Germans would capture the heights overlooking the city on the east bank, and then they could transfer some troops over to the other side of the river to launch attacks there. This would have been the ideal scenario, but it was clear by the 27th that that was just not going to happen, and even Falkenhayn realized it. So a serious discussion had to happen, both at Falkenhayn's headquarters and the 5th Army's headquarters. Falkenhayn would describe what was discussed at his headquarters in his memoirs, quote, The question that had to be considered by the GHQ was whether to intimate that the continuance of the operation on the Meuse would be abandoned and a new enterprise started on another front, end quote. The conference to decide the issue would take place on the last day of February at 5th Army headquarters. There was a lot of discussion at this meeting between the parties involved. The Crown Prince took some time to describe just how problematic the French positions were on the West Bank, and then both the Crown Prince and Nobeldorf laid out three conditions on which they believed the attack should be continued. The first condition was that the attack must now take place on both the east and west banks of the river. Second, they must be given more troops, enough to give attacks on both banks a high likelihood of success. Third, the campaign should be halted the instant that we ourselves were losing more heavily and becoming exhausted more rapidly than the enemy. If Falkenhayn did not agree to all of these conditions, the Crown Prince and Noblesdorf said that the attack must be halted. Faced with no other option, and not yet willing to give it up, Falkenhayn agreed to these conditions. More troops were brought in and given to the 5th Army, 
an entire German corps from the reserves. Preparations for the attack on the West Bank would begin on March 6th, with an accompanying attack on the East Bank at the same time. So at this point, the offensive at Verdun, which Falkenheit had initially wanted to be a limited attack, had just doubled in size. G.J. Myers, in A World Undone, would say of this decision, quote, And so the Germans, having in the space of a week thrown away two opportunities to capture Verdun, cast aside the chance to get out cheaply. End quote. The path to Verdun was a long one, and now just a week in, the Germans were already changing up their plan. The reasons and decisions along the way that resulted in Verdun becoming such a disaster for the Germans was long, but this moment, this one choice to double down, was the root of it all. This was the last real moment where the Germans could have stopped and called it a day. They would have had to retreat back just a bit on the east bank to get their troops in sustainable positions, but they had occupied Douaumont at the very least, and that was something to brag about. However, they of course did not do this, and they would now go all in it for done. The Germans, much like the French when Castelnau had ordered the troops to hold every foot of ground, had just opted into a victory or death situation. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned earlier, the main objective of the attack on the West Bank was La Mort-Homme, which was a set of two hills that were so close together that they formed a ridge, and it was absolutely perfect as an artillery observation point, and had a great view of all of the areas on both sides of the river. There was French light artillery guns at the top, and then of course a plethora of spotters for the heavy artillery behind the lines. With this situation in 1914, you did not really need to base guns on the top of hills like in the Napoleonic Wars. Just one man and a telephone wire to the rear was more than enough. The ridge was a somewhat distant objective for the German front, from the German front lines, with it being around two miles in the distance. And this was a problem for the Germans. As we have discussed before, the best situation for attackers in 1916 was for their jumping off points to be as close to their objectives as possible. Two miles is a long way to go. The biggest problem was simply that the French would be ready for the attack this time. It would be barely a surprise at all. And the plan remained simple, even for all this. 
Much like the attacks on the other bank during the first few days, there would be lots and lots and lots of German artillery dropping on the French over a relatively short period of time, and then the German artillery would push forward quickly. Unfortunately, unlike those earlier assaults in the first few days, it would not go very well. At 8 a.m. on March the 6th, the artillery fire began on the West Bank, with the typical German intensity. It lasted for almost four hours before the infantry began their attack. The artillery had focused on La Morhomme instead of the French front line, because the Germans knew that in this area the real problem would be the French positions on the ridge. When the attack started, this seemed like the right move, because the assault troops quickly overran the French front line. German troops also crossed the river at Braben to meet the German troops as they moved forward. If you remember, Braben was captured on like the first day of the battle. The French 67th Division, which was in the French front lines at the time, found itself having to retreat rapidly, and in some cases the units just broke completely and fled back in panic. By the evening, the Germans were reaching one of their primary objectives on the road to Morhome, the Bois de Cabot. This wooded area was to the north of the ridge, but it controlled the approaches to it and was essential if they wanted to continue the advance. Throughout the night and into the next day, the Germans pushed through the woods, capturing all of it by late in the afternoon on the 7th. The hope was that this wood would allow the men attacking against the ridge, which was by this point starting to bog down in the assault, to continue forward. By nightfall on the second day of the attack, everything seemed to be going well. And then, on the morning of the 8th, a French counterattack hit the German troops hard in the Bois de Carbeau, and they found themselves slowly pushed back. By 7.30 a.m., almost all of the Bois de Carbeau was back in French hands, and the Germans were left wondering what had just happened. Everything was going so well. The French had not been caught by surprise this time when the Germans attacked, they had time to bring forward reinforcements over to the West Bank before the attack, and when the Germans did attack on the 6th, there were already four divisions moving into the lines, with another already in reserve. These 60,000 troops, with more ready to come in behind if required, were ready to launch their counterattack just 48 hours after the attack started. They were also backed up by the French artillery, with Patan having his guns focus on the German guns on the West Bank during the attack. All of this meant that when the Germans attacked, the French were ready and their ability to counterattack was being displayed in spades in the Bois de Carbeau, and it put a stop to the German advance. The Germans had been planning on renewing their attack on Morhome later on the 8th, but they had to call this attack off, and instead they focused on holding what they had already captured against the oncoming French. But the next day, on the 9th, they were ready to move forward again, this time, though, the French were completely prepared, and when the Germans attacked, they ran into a solid wall of French fire and resistance, resulting in almost no gains being made. On the east bank, the attack that was supposed to be launched in sync with that on the west had to be delayed due to the difficulty of getting shells to the guns at the front, and even when it finally did go forward, the results were less than stellar. The one important gain on the, west, on the east bank was near Fort Vaux where the Germans were able to advance right up to the fort. On the west bank, the advance had hit a serious roadblock, 
which was a serious problem because the positions that the Germans now occupied were way worse than what they'd started in. They went from nice, awesome, sheltered positions to being out in the open under direct observation of the French. This meant that the German leaders had only two choices at this point. On the West Bank, they either had to retreat, like right now, and admit defeat, or continue on with the attack regardless of consequences. Staying put just was out of the question. Of course they would continue the attack. Even though the locations on the West Bank are less known than on the East Bank, where places like Douaumont and Vaux dominate histories of Verdun, La Mort Homme and Cote 304 saw some of the most savage fighting of the entire 10-month struggle. There would be a very specific pattern that would take hold on the West Bank. First, the Germans would attack and make some initial progress. Then the attack would slowly grind to a halt thanks to French resistance and artillery. Then the French would counterattack, push the Germans back off of most of their gains, but usually not all. And so the slow tide of German advancement would continue, day after day, at crushing cost. On the 14th, six whole divisions attacked straight against Morhome. On the 20th, there was another attack. Through all of this, there were almost always smaller attacks every single day, bridging the gaps between the larger efforts. One problem that the Germans were facing on the West Bank was the fact that every time they would capture a French position, even if it seemed extremely important at the time, there always seemed to be another one right behind it that was just as critical to continued success. With the continued failures of reaching the main prize, more home, the Germans decided that they would have to capture another hill first, Cote 304. This would hopefully be accomplished by the 11th Bavarian Division, who would take several days to prepare for the attack. When they went forward, the Bavarians made some easy initial progress. Most of this was thanks to some information that they had gathered from French deserters, specifically information about routes through the French barbed wire that the troops were able to take advantage of. This allowed the Germans to easily reach the French positions on the way to Cote 304, and to capture several thousand Frenchmen along the way. However, they found that when they tried to continue forward, they were immediately under fire from masses of French heavy mortars, which had been placed specifically to deny the Germans the route to Cote 304. They also ran into French machine guns, also set up for the same purpose. Several times they tried to advance, but each time they ran into a solid wall of steel that made it impossible to continue forward. By the end of March, the Germans had lost 20,000 men on the West Bank. The initial attacks had been a failure, and the Germans would again have to reevaluate their situation for April. But there was also another fact in the fighting to consider, the state of the German troops involved in the fighting. The biggest problem was the way that the Germans utilized divisions at the front. Instead of rotating divisions in and out of the fighting like the French, the Germans kept the same divisions in the same areas over a lengthy period of time, several months usually, even during attacks. To keep their numbers up, replacements were constantly pumped into the unit so that over time, the percentage of long-time veterans got smaller and smaller, especially at Verdun, where their rate of attrition was so high. This would then result in more casualties and overall less effective attacks. German medical officers were also beginning to write report after report concerned about the physical state of troops at Verdun, especially those who had been there a while, 
and the situation would certainly not improve if the fighting continued. This also meant that the number of German troops who experienced Verdun was smaller than on the French side, which has some role in like the collective history on the German side. Regardless of all of these problems, the Germans would keep on attacking day after day. G.J. Meyer, again here, quote, The dynamics of the situation was drawing the Germans into a nearly obsessive willingness to attack and attack regardless of cost, and to attack not only with guns but with troops. Blindness, loss of perspective, had become a more serious affliction to the German side than the French. End quote. The Germans, in essence were falling headlong into their own trap. Even though by the end of March the fighting had been going for, for over a month, it was still not close to ending. It was really not even the beginning of the end. At best, you could say that the failures of the opening attacks on the West Bank represented just the end of the beginning, and the next stage of the battle would be even more deadly than anything that had come before. 